While it's no secret that female healthcare is broken, you may not realize how many providers are inside the system quietly and profoundly changing it. Today, you'll meet one of their very best. I'm Carol Johnson, and this is Hello Uterus. Okay, so open notes on your phone or grab one of those things, pens, I think they're called, and get ready for many masterclasses from a family nurse practitioner living with endometriosis. This is going to be a beefy episode, and I encourage you to listen to the entire thing because she delivers. But first, uterus in the news. actually news to most. A significant majority of Americans do not support laws that would prohibit access to drugs used in medication abortions, and confidence in the U.S. Supreme Court is at a new low, according to a new poll released on Monday, April 24th. A majority of Americans also do not believe federal judges should be able to overturn the FDA's approval of a prescription drug, the poll found. But gee, who would have thought that? Of course we don't. That's why they're the FDA. It's it's a wild, wild world out there, isn't it? 64% of Americans also oppose a law that would ban access to medication abortion. We're so glad to have that poll, and we know that that's the case. And the Supreme Court did not pull Mifepristone from the shelves, as many of us thought they might on Friday evening. Let's hope that that remains the case, um, because this next little tidbit speaks to the importance of access to health care for females, including medications for abortion, to also facilitate spontaneous abortion gone awry. Otherwise, people will die. A large Danish population study of almost 30,000 women diagnosed with endometriosis between 1977 and 2017 and matched with 300,000 controls, has found an association with pregnancy loss and recurrent pregnancy loss, but also that the association strengthened with the increasing number of miscarriages. So the more miscarriages, the more likely miscarriage would happen. We prefer to call it spontaneous abortion so that we're not placing blame on the pregnant person. People with endometriosis are not only less likely to get pregnant and more likely to experience pregnancy loss, but their chance of a spontaneous abortion also increases for each subsequent pregnancy. What I love about Danish studies is that they look at large segments of the population because they have an amazing repository of long-term patient data from their nationwide healthcare system. And this data is, again, it's it's probably not something that is news to people living with endometriosis, but it's this data that actually, it's data like this, I should say, that actually helps get changes made. And it, it helps people who are lobbying for funding and for increased research to, to make that happen. And I specifically included it because having 
a spontaneous abortion is that it's not a guarantee that that process goes off without a hitch, as we know, and it can result in the death of the pregnant person, which is all the more reason why we need to have access for medications that are used to facilitate spontaneous abortions and or to treat spontaneous abortions and to facilitate really anything because we know so little about the female body and we have so few treatments available to females we really can't afford to lose anything we need it all and we need more and data like this is is a way for us to get that funding, and also to impress upon people who are not clinicians, impress upon them how debilitating and devastating these conditions are. And in the fact that early diagnosis with access to gold standard treatment is essential and funding research is the only humane thing to do. And by funding, I don't mean double-digit millions. I mean serious funding. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you want to catch up on all the years that we didn't get the funding, you can start pulling it into that B range, into the billion-dollar range. We won't complain. I would also like to see more discussions happening outside of clinical environments around spontaneous abortions, what causes them, what happens when they happen. And let's get this information out to those who legislate so that they can also be educated on this very common condition that happens that is typically really easily treated until you take away health care from females. Then it becomes very difficult to treat. And I'm sure, like me, all of you don't want to see people die, and hopefully all of them don't want to see people die too. It should be a universal wish. Maybe it is. And the more that we educate those who are not educated, the less misinformation flourishes, and maybe the more productive we can be as a society. That would be awesome. So I just want to say that we have a giant interview episode for you. And we're going to take a quick break. Like I said, open your notes application or get a pen and paper because you're going to want to jot down the golden nuggets of wisdom that Kimother Redman is delivering on this episode of Hello Uterus. Follow the Uterine Kind team and me over on Instagram and TikTok at Uterine Kind. Kimother Redmond is a family nurse practitioner serving low-income uninsured patients in her area. Before her nursing career, she was a research consultant with a background in brain injury research and workforce development. Her professional goals are to increase provider awareness of healthcare inequity, become a leader in bridging the gap between research and clinical practice in underserved communities, and empower people to make well-informed health decisions for themselves and their families. Being diagnosed with stage four endometriosis in 2021 after over, hold on for this, 20 years of countless incidents of dismissal, gaslighting, bias, and incompetency has fueled her own diligence in becoming a healthcare provider and educator that prioritizes high-quality, trauma-informed care for all. Outside of work, as if she has any time, Kimother regularly volunteers for endo endometriosis support for endo black and at her local church. 
Kimother and her husband, Brandon, also started a podcast called Endo Thick of It for couples navigating chronic illness. I cannot encourage you enough to go check out this podcast, having a husband and wife team to talk about how they've navigated it and provide opportunities for us all to learn from their experience is something that we desperately need for all people who live with chronic illness. Kimother is paving the path to equitable health care for those who most need it and deserve it, people of color. We are grateful to have time with her today on Hello Uterus. Kimother, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Oh, gosh, it is our pleasure. Just thinking about your goals, I can feel this entire massive cheerleading squad of people coming together because your goals are the things that we need so desperately today. So you're supported and we will make sure that more people find out about the work that you're doing and that you continue to be supported. So, so happy to have you here. So I want to start with understanding a little bit about your experience as a patient living with endometriosis. And can we begin with where you were at in your healthcare career when your symptoms either began or did your symptoms begin before you decided to pursue a healthcare career? That's an excellent question. So my symptoms did actually start just like for many people with endometriosis pretty young. Uh, I had pretty painful periods that I thought were normal, but they were not uh, since the age of 11. And I always was very interested in healthcare. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to be a doctor or a veterinarian, anything. Just, I, But I was always really fascinated with anatomy and physiology. And I just remember really wanting to dig and try and learn, like, why are my periods like this? Is this how it's supposed to be? But even with all my knowledge and my curiosity, I, I still normalized it for some time. Uh, even well into my undergraduate, uh, I earned public health undergraduate and, and master's degree before going into research. And even with that background, I still was like, I think this is just how it's supposed to be for me. It's it's really uh, blows my mind, just like how someone, even myself, who's very um, you know research-driven, who loves to learn, who is fascinated and pretty well-versed with you know, the human body, still was able to gaslight myself even because of the amount of times I had been told by providers, family members, that this was just what life was supposed to be like. Wow. There's so much to unpack in there. The idea, and it's it's not uncommon that mm-hmm. healthcare professionals are living with chronic conditions that they themselves have normalized, which in a way kind of makes sense because within the medical profession, bad, heavy, painful periods have been normalized. So Absolutely. It's kind of wild because I personally would expect a different outcome, but that's bananas because on the other side, it makes perfect sense that if you're working in healthcare over time, your own awareness of your symptoms is being normalized just by Mm -hmm. exposure. Right. Absolutely. And also working in healthcare, especially in the nursing profession, because I transitioned from public health research to nursing and 
it only was even worse when I got into nursing because not only was it normalized, your own personal health pretty much is put on the back burner. The expectation as a healthcare provider, at least as a nurse, is patient first. Uh, a lot of nurses are almost programmed to believe that the hospital will fall apart if they don't come to work. <laughs> right. Um, because there's a little truth in there, but it, it becomes from like individual re- responsibility. That's where I think it becomes a little toxic. So I put my health even more on the back burner once I became a nurse and really made my life's priority was my patients. So even if my patients are dealing with pain that probably was comparable pain that I was dealing with, you know, some days of the month, I would do everything possible to still be able to show up for my patients and and manage their symptoms, manage their pain, but not do those things for myself really well. Right. Well, it's programming and it's also by design to put Mm -hmm. so much burden on the nurse's shoulders that you're right. If they didn't show up, what would get done? I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just such a precarious situation. So you were diagnosed in 2021. Mm, Let's see. Goodness. So yeah, I was about 30, I guess I was 39 at that point. So from 11 to 39, (laughs) I just had worsening symptoms. But what really tipped me over, unfortunately, was while I was working as a nurse, I was also in grad school to become a nurse practitioner. And my symptoms started to go from being just really severe periods that didn't quite make sense, but it was just, you know, a few days of the month to becoming more and more days of the month. I recall around 2017, 2018, that my pain and this just overall fatigue and just being almost debilitated, the number of days that I was debilitated out of the month started to to add on. If, if it started out with just being the first couple of days of my period, then it was three days of my period, four days, five, until it was my entire period, which at the time was eight days long. That's a that's a very significant chunk of time out of the month. <laughs> Absolutely. And that that in and of itself is what is regularly blown off. Right. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely. Oh, that's just your period. Oh, you just, it's just have your bad period. Periods. Yeah. Right. And I started bringing these things back up to my healthcare providers because after a while I stopped bringing it up in my 20s. But in my 30s, started bringing it up again, saying, man, my periods are becoming pretty unmanageable. And even as early as my early to mid 30s, I was told, oh, it's likely just fibroids. And I did have fibroids, but at the time they weren't sizable enough to convince me that they were the culprit of all of my symptoms. But then I was also told, well, this is also normal too. Periods should be painful and Black women tend to have even more painful periods. And right. I don't know where what research they were citing there, but I would hear that a, a lot. It's like, no, wait a second. Let, let's just change that around. Black mm-hmm. women are disproportionately impacted by fibroids. So yes, doctor. So yeah. Black people do have periods that can be more painful with heavier bleeding, but it's it's not because they are Black females. It's mm-hmm. because there's an undiagnosed condition at play right. here. Can we mm-hmm. focus on that? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I remember when I finally flat out asked, like, what 
what else can you offer me besides copious amounts of incense? <laughs> I was I was just started getting kind of fed up and and I was told, oh, well, you can have a hysterectomy. And I was like, oh, <laughs> are you serious? Don't you think that yeah. um, escalated pretty quickly? We're really going straight to hysterectomy. <laughs> Whoa, organ removal? I mean, are you kidding? The number one reason for hysterectomies is due to fibroids. Mm-hmm. But again, my fibroids at that point weren't massive. At that point, they weren't in, impeding fertility. I mean, I think my mother had one like the size of a grapefruit. They were nowhere near that significant, but they were easy to blame for all of my symptoms. So Yeah, and then to say it like it's just fibroids. It's like gosh, mm-hmm. we've actually we've actually normalized whole conditions now. I mean, like whole right. chronic conditions that whole are abnormal. We've Mm -hmm. just flipped the table on them because they Mm -hmm. primarily impact female bodies and now they're called normal. That's bonkers. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned something. uh, You said that you stopped going to the doctor in your 20s. Can you tell me about what what made you make that move? So I always found going to the doctor to be stressful and anxiety provoking. I definitely had a lot of distrust. My first like well woman visit was pretty traumatizing and it made me really hesitant to do anything that would require pelvic exams or anything else that was invasive. And, you know, I still would do my due diligence of doing my paps and just bearing the discomfort of them. But after a while, I got tired of just being given NSAIDs, like ibuprofen and naproxen. It would just alternate between the two when I would tell them how painful my periods were. And I started to to really just question the intelligence. I, I mean, I hate to say it, but just like this, the intelligence of, of a lot of the providers that I was seeing, because I think it was just too easy for, for them to just say, oh, just here's more pain medicine without anyone even asking, how long have you been using these high dose like NSAIDs, like my, my GI is a hot mess now because of long-term use of high-dose anti-inflammatory medications. And so by the time I got to maybe my mid to late 20s, I just tried to interact with the healthcare industry as little as possible. I mean, bare minimum while working in, in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that is, it's such a service for you to talk about this. So thank you, because so many people take themselves off the care pathway for exactly this reason. Mm -hmm. And it is not uncommon, but I don't hear people put it into words and talk about it publicly that often that they have basically made the choice at, at a particular point in time to take themselves off the care path and say, screw it. Yep. And be like, I'm better off without. (laughs) Right. Which is so unfortunate because there's a reason why we should have a care team. We should have general practitioners and OBGYNs that we can lean on to help coordinate our care. Because at any point in time, not only would we need preventive care, but things can come up and we need someone who can provide that continuity over time. And I never was able to develop that continuity. I I think I never stayed with with an OBGYN longer than two years before they piss me off and I write them off. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And having to go from doctor to doctor and begin that process all over again and and taking the time off from work and getting yourself Mm -hmm. there in transportation and all of that, it's such a waste 
of everyone's valuable energy, time and energy and resources, it elongates the time from symptom onset to intervention, which then leaves somebody with getting diagnosed at stage four endo when they had symptoms as young as 11 years old. Mm -hmm. Would you describe to me what trauma-informed healthcare looks like? I love to individualize this because I know there's really great big picture definitions of trauma-informed care, but I have to make that real for me and, and how best to apply it with my patients. So for, for me, it, it means taking the time to realize that one, this isn't just another patient in front of me. This is a person, a human, someone who is coming to me as someone who has likely been through a just unsaid number of experiences that have shaped perhaps how they are now um, interacting with the healthcare industry. And I find it, for me, my responsibility to keep that in mind to, at the best level possible, to not add to the trauma that they have already experienced. Now, there's definitely some great formal definitions out there, too, that I can direct people to. But I really I challenge providers to really personalize it to what it is that their patients need in order for them to not do harm and to be able to provide care that is equitable, that is going to provide dignity, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to honor the, honor them as a human, as a person, as someone of value, but that also is shaped by what the needs of that patient is too. So a lot of times when we use the, the more broad definition of trauma-informed care, we, we tend to put trauma in a box. But at this point, I've seen patients with so many different types of experiences that have contributed to their own form of complex PTSD, even just related to how they've interacted with the medical system. I can, I personally can relate to that for sure. So I try to simplify it for providers and say, look, yes, this is what trauma-informed care means, but at the end of the day, it primarily is means that we are human and the person in front of you is also human and they have a rich background and experiences that has shaped them to who they are today. What can you do to not add any added trauma to them? And what can you do to help them make the best, well-informed decisions for themselves and their families? So essential. And that that is a great way to look at it. For a care team that is overburdened in our environment today to say, hey, this, this isn't some McKinsey-level process that you have to go through with 16 different points that you need to meet to establish some sort of care rating threshold. It's like, no, just don't, don't cause more trauma. Yeah. That'd be really good. Absolutely. And it also is getting to know the patient. And I realize that our healthcare system really doesn't allow for this very well. So that's why I'm so impressed by providers who have kind of found their way to do this. The healthcare system is not very flexible uh, because Mm -hmm. trauma-informed care really means 
getting to know what's what has that patient been through? Tell me what's happened to you. What has your interactions with other providers been like? How does your mind, body, and spirit respond when you are in environments like this, in this medical environment? It just part, it humanizes the situation. And I, I hate that we have to be intentional about humanizing the patient provider dynamic, but unfortunately we we do because not only flawed healthcare system, but flawed society as it relates to this dynamic, but that we have to be really intentional about ensuring that we see the human in each other. To me, the quickest way really to do that is to acknowledge that likely harm has been done in some capacity, regardless of that person's background and getting to know them well enough that you can ensure that you don't add more harm. So important. In our interviews with patients and in our market research with the Uterine Kind app, it seems that there are still people who believe that the level of gaslighting, bias, dismissal of symptoms. In fact, some people have actually said gaslighting is too strong of a a word to use for what happens in a healthcare appointment. So that's kind of frustrating to me, along with the fact that I think I must be impatient at heart because I've heard about and experienced gaslighting. And so my assumption is once someone raises that, that that exists, that a whole group of people are going to band together to get rid of that. And that has not happened. I am routinely reminded of how difficult it is to create change. But when you hear people say gaslighting is too strong of a word for what's going on, reflecting on your own experience Mm -hmm. and also from a professional perspective, how do you feel about that? How do you feel hearing that? Well, I I can't align myself with that because I I actually do think that gaslighting is quite fitting of a term for what I've experienced and what I know many others have. I think that people perhaps are considering it maybe too strong of a word now because the word is now being used in so many other contexts as well, well outside of the you know healthcare realm. And you know, when whenever our society gets a term that becomes too big for its own good, uh, it becomes just just that too big to be right unwieldy. Yeah, yeah, like um, like almost like cancel culture and and other buzzwords. But at the root of it, it is quite fitting. Medical gaslighting is whether it's intentional or unintentional, it is unfortunately happening quite regularly. And I I think what helps facilitate this dysfunction is a lot of times us as healthcare providers, one, we have time restraint. That's already a challenge. Two, we can sometimes start to get lazy within our practice. And we start to think, that every disease disorder has a certain look, a certain patient profile. So then when we get people who don't fit those profiles, we just say, oh no, you can't possibly have that. Now we're not believing the patient. We've gotten off track of actually just getting the patient's history and ensuring that we have a good history so that we have all the information necessary to, to come up with what our, we think our, their, our differential like diagnoses might be. But then even patients that don't know the term gaslighting, like for example, a lot of my patients are recent immigrants who have never heard that term before. But when they describe what it is that they've experienced when interacting with the healthcare system, it fits that definition. And when they describe what they experienced when it came to the States, the interaction that they are having 
fits that definition. So I have to believe the patient. And that's another thing too, is that I'm always going to default to believing the patient. <laughs> you know, like, so if patients are telling me that's what they're experiencing, I will not try to say otherwise. That seems to be a really wise strategy because we talk about this on the show here a lot, and I'm sure you're aware that students in med school are taught that 90% of a diagnosis comes from the patient's symptom story. So exactly. if you're... Yeah, if you're telling that patient that what they're telling you is not accurate, and then we look at the long list of conditions that remain undiagnosed for years, mm-hmm. it doesn't take a PhD to figure out what's going on. Absolutely right. That's exactly what I try to emphasize to my colleagues, but especially medical students, nursing students, that the history is everything. You, you, you The patient will tell you what's going on with them. They'll diagnose themselves unknowingly if you collect a good history and that you ensure that that patient knows that the information that they're giving to you is being well-received. That's why I want us to make sure that we're learning about our nonverbal communication and, and making sure we're not providing weird faces and our dismissively going, looking at our laptop, not looking at the patient while they're pouring their heart out to us, you know, want to ensure that they feel that this is a space to openly share how they're feeling, because it can be hard to describe some of these non-specific symptoms, but it's our job to help them with that. I provide people with descriptors. I try to tell them what describe it in your own words, and I will then tell you how I interpret that. And you tell me if I, how far I am from it. Am I hitting the mark or not? You know. Okay, we just like, had a master class. That was a master class <laughs> in how to facilitate a patient symptom story. Absolutely, and I mean, regardless of their literacy level, I mean, I've done it with patients of all kinds of backgrounds. They're all capable of telling you what they're going through, even if they struggle to make sense of it. That s- still is meaningful too include in my history that the symptoms are erratic, unexpected, and seem to be intermittent and can happen at any time of day. Like that, that's helpful information to know. Even when they give me non-specific symptoms, that's helpful because as you know, there's some disorders that almost completely is characterized by non-specific symptoms like fatigue and difficulty sleeping. Like it's up to us to become good diagnosticians. Like diagnosticians, is that a word? Diagnosticians? Diagnosticians? No. Diagnosticators? No, <laughs> maybe, I don't think. Maybe, maybe Angel could help us with that. Oh, you know, you know I, we basically look at it as, as your care team. They are the detectives and yes. you, you are the eyewitness. And mm-hmm. I've never heard of a detective interrupting an eyewitness, telling yeah. them that they didn't see what they thought they saw or sending them out of the interrogation room before they feel like mm-hmm. they've told their full story. So exactly. we, we can look to a detective and say, that's a good way to look at it. But it so to people who are listening, who are living with symptoms, taking what Kimather is saying here, what she has pointed out is that it's in the details and the nuance of the story that you're sharing. You don't have to rehearse this or like try to find the perfect word. It's so important to express how you're feeling. But if you're not in front of her and you're in front of someone else who isn't allowing you to express that, 
first of all, we're sorry. And mm-hmm. second of all, Kimther, how can we help them in that situation where they're not sitting across from you? They're sitting across from someone that you have had a similar experience with, right? That, you know, mm-hmm. someone who is going to hear those symptoms like fatigue and suggest getting more sleep. <laughs> it's kind of like, are you, oh, really? <laughs> so frustrating. So frustrating. <laughs> Get more sleep, eat less, move just, more. You just need more sleep, lose some weight. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. So even though I don't want everyone to feel like they have to almost write a dissertation before they come into their visits, like I, that is just so overwhelming to me. It can sometimes add to the anxiety, but there is something to some level of preparation. It doesn't have to be super formalized. It can be describing what you're going through, putting it on paper, even if it's just to help you understand it better and to make sure that you're giving it good thought because we do need all the details or at least as many details as possible to be able to, to help. And if if appointments tend to make you flustered or if you're dealing with a lot of pain, so you never know when that pain is going to flare up and can start making it difficult to focus in the appointment, then it is good to do some preparation, have some information written down. For example, if you have those non-specific symptoms like fatigue, as much as you can categorize it, the better. So for example, when I ask somebody about fatigue, most people don't even say the word fatigue. Like they usually are like, just tired. When And then we get providers that say, oh, well, just get some more sleep. Who isn't? Right. Yeah, everyone's, yeah. everyone's tired. I tell them if after a full night of sleep, you're waking up and you are still exhausted, that's fatigue. If activities that used to not exhaust you is now exhausting you, that's fatigue. So sometimes it means providing the provider with examples. Like I'm dealing with fatigue that is relentless, even when I'm getting my full eight hours of sleep at night. I used to be able to run five miles. Now I can barely walk my dog around the block. Like those descriptors help paint a picture for the provider Mm -hmm. to realize the impact on your life that this is having, the change that it's having on your life versus it just being just a, a spell of feeling tired for whatever reason. And then I also, I tell patients, about old cart only because that's how your provider is thinking. So I think patients should too. Old cart is an acronym that stands for onset. So that's when did the symptoms start? Location. So if it's like pain, for example, being able to describe where you're having that pain. Duration. So like how long does it last? Like when you have pain with urination, how long does that pain last? Does it last for 20 minutes after you've urinated or does it only last until you finally urinate or those type of descriptors? And C is like characteristics. So like, is it burning? Is it a cramping pain? Is it Does it feel like menstrual period pain? And I know that most providers may not be nice enough to provide you with all these words to describe what you're going through. But thankfully, there are sources online that have done a good job of finding these types of words to help people be like, you know what? Yeah, actually, that it is an electric type feeling. feels like I'm being zapped or something like, yes, you know, have that information. So A, uh, so I like to make sure that people tell me like, is there anything that aggravates the symptoms? If you're dealing with fatigue, is it worsened when you, you know, like 
bowel movements because this that is actually a, a lot of people's reality. Like after I go to the bathroom, the, my fatigue is just so much worse that I have to lay down. The fatigue is worsened by just doing you know 15 minutes of house cleaning and then I have to lay down. And then R will be relieving factors. Is there anything that actually helps? That's my favorite one personally, because who wants to go to a healthcare provider just for them to say, I know exactly what you need. And they tell you something that you've already tried multiple right. times. <laughs> so, so I, I said, so let them know what have you done already? What have you tried? And was it helpful or not? Was it only partially helpful or was it like not helpful at all? And then T can be a couple of different things, but a lot of times I, I'll stick with time because sometimes I can get messed up with like duration, but time is mm-hmm. another, is another way to, to really be able to describe like this tends to happen at this time of day. That can give us a lot of information when people can tell me that. And again, you should not have to feel like you have to have all of these answers, but it at least gives us a framework to work with. So that even if the night before the appointment, you're like, all right, let me just make sure that I have some language around describing what I'm going through. Because at the end of the day, I'm dealing with a provider who has 15 minutes and likely will not have the time or desire to help pull this information out of me. So what can I do ahead of time? Such great information. You're right. When you begin an appointment and you know the clock is ticking and you try to tell what you think is a good expression of your symptoms, I think Mm -hmm. we put ourselves in a position, we proactively put ourselves in a position where we may experience having those symptoms dismissed. Because if we Mm -hmm. go in and we say, my periods are really bad, I'm just going to let you know, that's not going to get you the diagnosis that you need. Get you far. No, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, that it's really unfortunate to say that Mm -hmm. because you're right. It should. And yet it almost is like the nail in the coffin because it immediately switches that provider's mindset to, okay, so we'll all offer birth control pills. And if they're not open for that, then they're just going to have to ride it out until they get Mm -hmm. pregnant or they want a hysterectomy. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because that's what mm-hmm. we do, right? We we bleed, we birth, and then we get the organ removed. So that that's really, really great information. You have to know that in advance. You have to be thinking about this while you're living with your symptoms. And I think it's really helpful for patients themselves to begin this process of connecting the dots because there is a feeling that happens that feels like progress. You don't feel like you're sort of in limbo or kind of floating in this space mm-hmm. of continuous questions. And, and also by connecting the dots, you take the pressure off of yourself. You may no longer be saying, I'm broken. I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. I must be the one who's at fault here. You start to build a different kind of relationship with your female sister system that is sort of like if you owned a really valuable high-tech device, you will develop over time a knowledge base to care for that device because it's very valuable and it's very high-tech. And that is the human body. That is us. Yes. No, absolutely. And we deserve that. We need that attention and that care. This is the body that we have. And I am a big believer that no one should know your body better than yourself. You don't have to be a medical professional to be able to take care of your body and be able to provide it what it needs. You just have to be familiar with it and be able to articulate its needs or what's going on. What I really like to help people 
wrap their heads around is, yes, you're going to have a provider who likely won't have time to figure everything out for you. But when you do a little bit of work ahead of time, you're, I feel like your BS meter is a little stronger a little, and more, more finely tuned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little more sensitive. Yeah, uh, because oh, you, yeah. Because yeah, you hit the nail on the head. That that feeling of being in limbo or just being completely at the will of that provider is, is unacceptable. We are partners in our care. Like that, doc, that doctor, that clinician, that PT, they should be partnering with you. So that means that we can't put the complete onus on them. But, and vice versa, the, the provider should not be putting the complete onus on the patient either to figure out what's wrong with them and to fix it. But through that partnership, the provider should really be able to say, okay, here are my thoughts so far. Here are a few things that this that could be contributing to this. What do you think might be going on? I love asking mm. people that because a lot of times people have done a little research and they're like, well, I'm concerned that it's this, this, or this, or, right. you know, my mom dealt with this. So I wonder if it might be that. That is so, so helpful. But if people are afraid to step on the provider's toes, they won't share what they think might be going on and just leave it all up to the provider, but we need them to be our partner, which means that we have to provide the information necessary for them to be able to make those recommendations for us to make those well-informed decisions. Yeah. Everybody has to be at the table and sharing in this process. Everybody needs to get better at this. Patients need to take ownership over their physical experience and being really aware of what's going on because just the skipping over a particular symptom or not connecting that symptom to to a reproductive issue or an endocrine issue that can change the trajectory of your consultation and mm-hmm. so whereas you could have been getting closer to a definitive diagnosis now you're off on some other path because mm-hmm. lack of preparation and i don't mean that in like a you know, shame on you, you weren't prepared kind of way, because I don't think the patients understand what no, a that, critical role they play in mm-hmm. this process. And we're not taught that either. We're, we're kind right. of taught that the doctor has all the answers and, you know, we Absolutely. just leave it up to them. So it really is a culture shift to say, oh, I need to make sure I'm doing my part here, knowing that it, there's a lot of challenges both for the patient to do to do their part. And there's challenges, of course, for the provider as well. Like I, I remember during some of my most painful seasons, it was so hard to just stay focused in an appointment, let alone actually absorb what I'm hearing and ask questions. Like I had to prepare ahead of time. That I had no, I really had no choice because I would often disassociate. Like once I got into the the appointment especially if I'm in so much pain. And of course, pain has a way of only being worse when you're also anxious. Right. <laughs> so this is what I was able to do before my visit. I was right. able to take a, um, a page out of my journal and just quickly write down the objective of that appointment, what I wish to get accomplished with that appointment. And here's what I'm going through that I need I'd really appreciate their expert opinion on. If that's all I can do before an appointment, that's a win. That's a win. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I feel like we meet an appointment, you know, in a lot of cases, you've had to wait weeks for this appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, you're bringing in past traumas with care. You very well may be going through 
issues at home because of your condition, issues at work, because it it is absolutely overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so if you go in and punt the football, it's okay. We were talking before we hit record about the importance of of not kicking your own ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's exactly. it's real. Yeah, it's just really important. And there's support networks now that didn't exist before that that are available to you to help you. So that if you don't nail an appointment, it doesn't mean that you that nothing can happen between that appointment and the next appointment. That's five months mm-hmm. down the road. There are things that yep. can be done. Yeah. I've, I, I mean, I've had appointments where I just hit a wall and had to say, you know, I'm going to have to stop here or I'm going to have to defer the physical exam for another time. I don't apologize for that at all. I just listen to my body and, and say this is I've kind of reached all that I can probably deal with today and still have the energy to get through the rest of the day. That's okay. Yeah, if that's we have boundaries. It's setting a boundary, not overdoing it, not you know, opening ourselves to then regretting. And believe me, I've I've had many appointments with many regrets before I finally started setting some clear boundaries. Because at the at, at the end of the day, that part is my responsibility. I have to protect my energy, my health, and I shouldn't do anything that I think is going to jeopardize that. You know, I've had visits that it flared up my pain for weeks on end because it was just too much and in such a short period of time. <laughs> now I I have a, a, a better idea of just like how much I can I can handle. But that's another motivator for preparing a little bit if you can, because the more prepared I am, usually the more I can get out of the appointment within a short period of time. If before the visit, I've already sent them copies of my my last MRI, a copy of my physical therapist's latest progress note, you know, any other helpful information that they might need. I, I at this point, have a typed up history of present illness that I will try to patient message to the provider bef- ahead of the appointment so that if they have the time, like if they do any prep before their visits, they can look that over and already walk into the appointment with a general idea of what we're going to be talking about today. And that changes the dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of coming in like healthcare team high on the summit of healthcare landia, can you please gaze down upon me and, mm-hmm. and you know diagnose me? Right, like that's just not going to happen. And so then you you change the dynamic, which is refreshing. You know, think about the practitioner, right? Appointment number twenty that day, even though people in their practice are living with a multitude of conditions, the symptoms can all sound the same. So you you kind of need to shake them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you get good results from that. I do. I, I honestly have been able to navigate, you know, multiple appointments in this way. And it's taken a while to create this, you know, but now it's like a fairly well-old machine where I feel like ultimately the providers are thankful because I've done a lot of the work for them already. Dream patient dream patient here. <laughs> That's, I do get that. But you know, if I can only recall one visit that I felt like that wasn't well received. And of course that happens. You know, this was a urologist that was towards the end of the day. So I'm sure he was already kind of at his, at his limit here. And I gave him some things ahead of time. Not too much, nothing overwhelming. Just here's a couple paragraphs of what I've been dealing with. Here's imaging 
And I sit down with him and he interrupted me like every third word as I'm trying to say, okay, let me reiterate while I'm here. Cause he didn't look at my email, my message. And that's fine. If you didn't have time to, that's okay. But don't sit here and interrupt me every third word. <laughs> yeah. right. But you know, some providers have a very, very um, overly systematic way that they gather information and though you're I being really kind right now. I'm just oh, gonna. I just gotta. Oh, I, I gotta am. jump in. Is that, is that why you pause? For, yeah, because I'm like, yeah, that, so... because it's because it's BS. We're we're not robots. Right. You're not typing right. in the question into a computer and and is spitting out an answer. We are humans. Though I can appreciate having a systematic approach to your diagnosis, you know, process. You can't eliminate the fact that you. this is a human being that you're talking to. Right. They are going to need to tell this story in the way that, that works best for them, too. And then it's your job. That's why you get paid the big bucks to fit it into your system. Make it, right. make it Put on your detective your hat. Exactly. exactly. Like, I, I think it's completely fine that if, if someone interrupts you while you're trying to express your symptoms or the experience, the things that you've done to date to address your issue, if they interrupt you, you can say, now, doctor, didn't you learn in medical school that 90% <laughs> of the diagnosis comes from the patient's symptom story? How are we going to get there if you don't let me finish what if I'm trying to say? Let me finish what I'm saying. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> It does. Yeah, it does depend. And in that case, I, I asked him, I was like, it looks like you, you have a very systematic way that you want to get this information. I want you to ask me more pointed questions so I can give you more pointed answers. Because so, don't ask me the big old, when did this all start? And then right. interrupt me every third word right. because you're trying to get the information in a certain way. No, ask me more specific questions and I will right. give you more specific answers. Yeah, yeah like, there's a whole yeah. new patient in the room today. I, I see this. I, I see the change happening. Mm-hmm. The more people are educated, the more that they can walk into a consultation as an equal mm-hmm. work on getting to a diagnosis. It is definitely changing, not changing fast enough. Not fast enough. And unfortunately, just like with any type of change, with with every change, there's always, it's always going to ruffle feathers. It's always going to reveal that some folks are not okay with that. Like there's, you definitely have your providers who think that a well-prepared patient is a nightmare. And I am just so, it, it just disappoints me so much. Or they are already quick to dismiss them because they think that, oh, that's a patient that thinks that their Google degree is better than my medical right. degree. And I'm like, you know, if you go into it with that mindset, really, how much are you going to get accomplished? Like, I can't blame a patient for wanting to try to find the answers. When I have a patient that has done some work and they've done their their best to try to research what's going on and try different things. I applaud them for that. And, you know, I, I tell them, okay, you know, I know you know this, that you can't believe everything online. And, but I really am glad that you've started to try and figure out what's going on. Now you have me on your team. Let's try and figure this out together. It, it diffuses everything when I make it clear that we're on the same team and that it's a pleasure to be on their team and to help them figure this out. I want to be your patient. Right now, I'm gonna. No. I'm, you're, in, you're in Maryland. I'm. I'm gonna I move am. to Maryland. That's it. I mean, anybody in it. Well, we'll we'll make sure people can find you before before we go. I do. I know that you went to the Endo Summit, and I would mm-hmm. love to hear about the most important takeaways that you had. And you also went with your husband Brandon, who is also the co-host of your podcast. 
Mm-hmm. Endo thick of it. And I, I think that that is A, so healthy that the two of you went together. And it's kind of a dream situation because I think that a lot of people live with chronic conditions and especially when they're gynecologic in nature, there can be a barrier with a male partner because they can't mm-hmm. empathize or maybe just, you know, they're they're empathetic, but they can't necessarily right. really get yeah. what you're going through. Yeah. Um, so what did you find most impactful at the summit this year? And what, and what did Brandon think was most impactful for him? First off, us going together was amazing. I'm so glad that we were able to arrange that with both of our jobs and all of our responsibilities. I realized that probably a lot of partners wish that they could bring their partner to to the conference too, but you know, sometimes just extenuating circumstances can make it difficult. But it is it is worth doing it if one can can make it work uh, because. I was able to receive information at the same time as Brandon and really process what we were learning together. Also, up until the to the summit, all of his endometriosis knowledge was coming from, from me. And I know every patient probably is accustomed to having to be the educator of their social network, of their, you know, their parents, their spouse, their children. like, And that can be exhausting as the mm-hmm. one dealing with the disease, especially if you're still in a state of limbo where you're still suffering in multiple ways from the disease. It can be overwhelming to also feel like you got to teach others too. So it was really refreshing for him to learn from the top folks in the field, uh, surgeons, therapists, researchers. I mean, I was really just impressed with the with the lineup and the diversity in the types of presentations. Like, thankfully, we we had an idea of what to expect with what you know what topics were being covered, and I was just so impressed that they really tried to address multiple corners of the endometriosis realm with a, a lot of emphasis, particularly on the on surgery, but only because we understand that surgery is that is really your your best bet is that expert decision surgery. So why not hear from those who are doing it what's working well for them? That was helpful for for us to learn that too. But hmm, some big takeaways for me. I even though I was able to learn a lot of clinical information that has already informed my medical visits, I mean, substantially have been able to inform my medical visits. My biggest takeaway was really the community, like being Um, able to be in community with people who just get it. It was my first time experience that. Man, I I mean, I underestimated just how amazing that part would be. I mean, I'm, I'm a clinician. I came ready to take my notes and learn everything. My mindset, I came into it as a clinician, but I left it as a fulfilled, empowered patient too. But to be able to fulfill and nourish both sides of of the coin there for me was awesome. Something that I think is is a sort of a new, like a new species, maybe. I don't know the right word (laughs) to call it, but before 
I guess maybe the internet, but honestly, even like with the internet there, it was, it's, I guess it's really more like we haven't been given permission to talk about these conditions and to talk about our experience with them. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to downplay them or we believe we should downplay them. And there's just this kind of siloed environment when it comes to receiving gynecologic care. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed in the last five years, let's say, with organizations like the White Dress and with the Endo Summit, that there is like genuine, powerful community happening here. And when you're in it, the feeling of being in a healthy environment is mm-hmm. is clear. It was so palpable. I mean, it almost yeah. felt like a, it felt like almost like a dream. That was that to literally be having conversations with a surgeon, a patient, a PT, a counselor, like we're all like actually bringing our perspectives to the table. And there was zero silo. And I'm so used to that. I'm just so used to everything being just so separate, the patient and provider being just so separate. And I feel like half my job is breaking those walls down between patient and provider. But I didn't have to do any of that there. It was so refreshing. I was so thankful for the surgeons because most folks consider surgeons to just be kind of Hmm, that's a good up word. Up on that describe. mountain that we talked yeah, about. That yeah, Mount, yeah. Mount Healthlandia. Healthlandia, you know, right. and, and they come down periodically to right. do their thing and then they go back up there. And I, I don't have that mystified view of surgeons per se, just because I've worked with some surgeons. And, but even with even that, I still had the idea that like, oh, well, you know, are they really doing this out of the goodness of their heart or, or, or is this, right. is it a passion yeah, or is, is it, it a business? passion? Is it a business? Is it a financial gain? Is it sometimes even being concerned that some might prey on the vulnerabilities of people in the endometriosis community? And it was so refreshing to encounter all of these surgeons who were very personable, very approachable, and who were approaching others. It's not like we had to seek them out and say, hi, Dr. Such and Such. Right, you stand don't know in me, but, you know, Right. No, like, like they were wanting to talk to the patients. They wanted to, to interact with this community that they've devoted their careers to. And that is amazing for, the, for them. I really think it's to the benefit of the surgeons as well. I can imagine that it can be really easy to, de- to develop tunnel vision and it can be easy to lose sight of why you're doing this. That's for anybody Mm. and anyone in any profession that is overwhelming, challenging, and very demanding. It can be easy to to lose sight of it. And I was really proud of each of the surgeons for not only taking the time out of their schedule to be there at the conference, but to also use that time to connect with the community in a way that they don't typically get to do. Yeah. So, and then they get to bring that back. And then we Mm -hmm. see the ripple effect because we're talking about it and Mm -hmm. everyone else is talking about it. And that's what really inspires me and others and gives hope to where we're at right now with these chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. I was going to, to ask you to give a pep talk to patients, but honestly, we all just got, we got a few masterclasses, masterclass in boundaries, masterclass in compassion, masterclass in how to nail your doctor's appointment. I mean, (laughs) I, I really, Really, really hope that you would consider coming back on the show at some point in the future to continue this conversation because there is a lot more that we can be talking about. But 
between now and then, how can people follow you? How can they find the podcast? And if they are in the Maryland area, how can they be so fortunate to have you as one of the providers on their team? Oh, well, thank you so much. Also, <laughs> just before I even dig into all of that, thank you so much for, for saying that. And and it's challenging to be a clinician. And I don't think anybody should pity clinicians, but it is challenging to be a clinician. And when you're one that's trying to go against the grain, it's even harder. I think all endometriosis specialists experience that. They, they are going against the grain themselves even because they are often going against their colleagues. They sometimes are even ostracized for choosing to become endometriosis specialists. And so for you to say, to say that it seems like I'm still doing good, <laughs> you know, oh, despite absolutely. the challenges is really reassuring. It really helps fill, fills up my tank. Um, You're making but, a difference. You are making I, a difference. Big one. Thank you. And so best way to, to reach me uh, is on Instagram, The Rebellious Uterus. That's my page. I made that page when I first learned that I was diagnosed with endometriosis, primarily as a way to not only get plugged into the endo community, but to also be able to be a resource to others, to let them know, here's what my experience was. Here's what I can offer. How can I help? And then our podcast is Endo Thick of It, and it's available at all your major streaming locations. And we're working to get it to even the smaller streaming sources too. And we have an Instagram as well called just Endo Thick of It too. So you can connect with Brandon and I. And unfortunately, at this time, where I work is only for patients who are local, who are low income and are uninsured which is very, very fortunate for that population. And it, but it yeah. also, but it means that I'm not able to take on patients who don't fit that very specific criteria. <laughs> and we're so grateful that you are taking that on. It was a big choice, I, I, but it's what I wanted to do. I really wanted my energy to go towards serving those uh, most in need. And, uh, but I promise you, whenever I decide to retire from the uh, health center, community health center life, I will let you know. <laughs> yeah, gosh, please don't don't fully retire from being a, no. a part of this community because we couldn't oh, do it without you. Mm -hmm. You are gifted. Thank you, Kimather, for being here. I'm so appreciative. Thank you too, Carol. You know, this was such a gift. And like I said, it really does give me the encouragement to just keep doing what I'm what I'm doing. And it's hard to go against the grain. It's hard to challenge others to to do better, especially when you're trying to convince clinicians that we really need to step it up for our patients. So the more I do things like this, that's just the more fuel that I that I have. And I was originally fueled by rage and disappointment. When I first started doing more advocacy work and patient education work in this area, but more and more that's being replaced by just the joy of knowing that I'm actually helping others and hopefully ensuring that people can ultimately get access to high quality care that they deserve. You know, and absolutely. I'll, be I'll, be, I'll be doing that until I absolutely can't do it anymore. <laughs> I'm going to call you every morning to let you know how amazing you are. So that you <laughs> oh my gosh. We're going to do that. <laughs> right, right before I go to work. <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be right. the best? If we just had, you know, like this, when I was younger, you would have like the phone tree where your parents would get called if it was like a snow day or oh, something. Yeah, and it would yeah. be like that round, round. We're going to do that. <laughs> 
Wouldn't that be great if we could just break a Guinness Book of World Records if every female phone tree right that we just all called each other one after the other to just tell each other how amazing we are i think that would i think we have to do that amazing that would be awesome (laughs) sign me up for sure okay excellent well thank you so much for being here on hello uterus we really appreciate it Thank you so much again. And thank you for providing this podcast and the app for this population. I am thankful uh, so much that I was able to stumble across your podcast. I absolutely love it. Keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you, Kimather. Thank you. We'll be right back with Ending on a High Note. In this week's Ending on a High Note, We're going mushroom foraging. I hope this is the first of many stories on mushrooms on this podcast, the little gem that has so much promise for humankind. But did you know that you can train mushrooms? I want to know if I can train them to cook themselves, because if they did that, then I would eat more of them. And also, like, could you imagine if food could cook cook itself? We could eliminate the processed food industry and we could just all be like magnificently healthy because the food would cook itself. I'm not sure how (laughs) that would work with animal proteins, but just anyway, let's get back to the mushrooms. Instead of me fantasizing about not having to cook dinner, let's talk about this because it's fascinating. So this, this research comes out of Australia. Cigarette butts are one of the largest forms of plastic littering around the world. In Australia alone, an estimated 9 billion cigarette butts are discarded every single year. I'm just, that seems like a lot. I can't imagine what it would be in the United States. So now Sustainability Victoria is funding a program that will keep an estimated 1.2 million butts out of landfills and waterways where they end up leaching microplastics and other toxic chemicals like arsenic into waterways and into the earth. And we know that these microplastics and chemicals impact wildlife. They impact our ability to farm, our ability to take care of our oceans, and they also impact our reproductive and endocrine systems. The program is run by a company that I am certainly going to reach out to to have to invite on this show, a company in Melbourne, Australia called Fungi Solutions. And one of the questions I'm going to ask them, is it fungi or fungi? Because it's like fungus, they're fungicide. I don't know. Anyway, we'll find that out and other burning questions that I have on pronunciation. But the program that they have developed involves training oyster mushrooms to consume cigarette butts for years. (sighs) Don't you want to know more? I definitely do. Their process mimics one that occurs naturally in the wild. According to the program, the mushroom can break down a cigarette butt in seven days. They would take around 15 years to break down in a landfill. 15 years for a cigarette butt to break down and the oyster mushroom can do it in seven days. And it's not just cigarette butts. Mushrooms can eat plastic. I remember talking about this on a podcast way back in the beginning. I think this might actually be our one-year anniversary podcast, in which case, yay. But a 
few years ago, I read an article about oysters consuming plastic and that they can do it effectively, like it, they understand how to do it. And here we are a few years later, and it's still it's still not happening. Now, if I ran the universe, it would be an instantaneous, I want mushrooms used in landfills and for recycling, I, mushrooms everywhere, just everywhere doing all of the recycling. Like, why does it take so long when this is such a problem, such a devastating problem that's causing considerable physical harm to people? It's causing cancer. It's a disaster. So mushrooms, I like, what can't they do? That's my only remaining question that we're going to ask the beautiful Australia-based Fungi Solutions or fungi solutions. When they come on the show, hopefully they will. So that is an, that's a wrap for a big episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. I absolutely did. I want to thank Kimitha Redman and please check out her podcast that she hosts with her husband, Brandon. It is called Endo Thick of It. And check her out on Instagram too. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok at Uterine Kind. You can also find the Uterine Kind app for free to download and use in both the Apple and Google Play stores, or you can download it from our website, uterinekind.com. If you listen to Kimather talk today, you will hear that the, the app and the ability to create a symptom story over time that you can turn into data and hand to your physician is a powerful tool to expedite a diagnosis. So please check it out. We're so delighted to be able to offer it and thrilled to have you here as listeners. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. That way more people can find the show. By writing a review and recommending the podcast in your community, it will help spread the word and help spread the incredible wisdom of people that we have on this podcast every week. And so that that would be, we would really appreciate that. And also, please do leave a review on the app after you download it in the Apple and Google Play stores, which also helps people find the app. Thanks again for being here. It is um, such a pleasure to produce this show each week for you. Until next week, be well, be cool, be kind. The Hello Eaters podcast is for informational use only. The content shared here is to not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. Please ask your physician about your health and call 911 if it's an emergency. And thank you, Uterine Kind, for listening.